Thank you, Joanne. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 21, first book of the New Testament, Matthew 21. We'll begin reading at verse 33, and we will read through the end of the chapter. Uh, We come tonight to another parable. Children, you know that uh, Jesus often taught in what we call parables, uh, typically uh, an easy-to-understand story, a memorable story. And we come to one of those tonight that uh, Jesus is once again telling to the religious leaders of Israel as a, as a warning to them. And uh, hopefully this is uh, a parable that will encourage us tonight, especially what we consider at the end of this parable. Uh, but it's also a parable that if, uh, if any of us are living in rebellion against God or any of us are living with the the mistaken idea that, well, I'm a church member or I come from a Christian home, I'm safe. Hopefully, if any of us have that kind of thinking tonight, we will see from this parable that that's a, a very false way of thinking. So, Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 33. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits and their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet." When you read the Gospels, uh, you probably notice that Jesus saves his harshest language for self-righteous legalists. Now, to those who were repentant, to those who were broken over their sin, uh, to those who sought the grace and mercy of Christ, uh, Jesus spoke words of comfort and words of compassion. Uh, To them, Jesus said the famous words of Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, weary and heavy laden from your sin, weary and heavy laden from trying to earn God's favor from your works, come to me and I will give you rest. To the woman caught in adultery, you remember that Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. To the thief on the cross, Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. 
And so Jesus spoke words of love and grace and compassion and kindness to those who are broken, to those who recognize their sin. But to those who were proud, to those who were self-righteous, to those who thought that they were better than others, Jesus spoke stern words of warning. In a few weeks, we will come to Matthew chapter 23, and that is really Jesus' harshest language that he speaks against the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, everything you do, you do to be seen by others. He says in Matthew 23 that that by your self-righteous ministry, you are making people children of hell. He, He calls those men blind fools, hypocrites, and whitewashed tombs. This parable tonight is, is another warning, another stern warning that Jesus gives to these men. This time it's in the form of a parable, and, and this parable is going to ramp up their anger against Jesus and make them want to kill him all the more. And we're going to look at this parable tonight in the same three points that we looked at last Sunday night's parable. First of all, there is the parable, then there is the question, and then there is the explanation. The parable, the question, the explanation. Children, it's a very um, straightforward parable. There is a man, and this man owns a vineyard. Now, in order to plant a vineyard, you have to first get the ground ready. And that would have been a a challenge in Israel because the ground in Israel was typically very rocky and, and full of stones. And so this man would have had to remove all these rocks and all these stones before he could plant his vineyard. Now, once that's done, he he goes ahead and he plants the vineyard, and then he does three things. First of all, he puts up a fence. Children, he puts up a fence in order to to keep the wild animals from getting into and damaging his vineyard. Then he digs a wine press. A, A wine press in that day would typically require two large holes to be dug. The first hole is where all of the grapes would be placed, and, and that's where the, the grape stompers, you can think of Lucy, and I love Lucy, that's where all the grape stompers would go and, and stomp the grapes with their feet. And, and the second hole would be a, a little bit lower hole that was attached to the first hole with, a, with a, a, some kind of a pipe or a drain. And, and when the grapes were crushed, the, the juice would travel down that pipe into that lower hole, and then they would take the juice and they would put it in jars or in wineskins. And so he builds the wine press. And then third, he, he also builds a tower. The purpose of the tower is to uh, keep an eye out for any wild animals or any thieves who might try to break into the vineyard. And, and so obviously this would have been a lot of work. This would have been long, painstaking, laborious work. This was the, the first century, not the 21st century, and this would have been hard work. And so he does all of this work, and and after he does that, he rents out the vineyard to some tenants, some people who are going to rent the vineyard from him, and and he leaves and he goes on an extended vacation. Now, the tenants would be in charge of of caring for the vineyard, uh, and as rent, they they would give the owner a certain percentage of the fruit each year. That's their rent payment. Maybe it's 10% 10% of the fruit or 20% of the fruit, but they would, they would pay the owner in fruit. And, and so, children, you can, you can kind of get a picture of what's going on here. This, this owner gets everything ready. 
He, he prepares everything diligently. He prepares the soil. He plants the vineyard. He puts a fence up. He digs a wine press. He builds a tower, and then he rinses it out. He goes away on his extended vacation, and while he's away on his extended vacation, harvest time comes, and, and it's time to collect the rent. It's time for him to collect his share of the fruit. And so he gets word to some of his servants, hey, I need you guys to go to the vineyard, and I need you to collect the rent. I need you to collect my share of the fruit. And so that's what they do. Now, now think about this. These, these tenants, these tenant farmers have a great situation. The owner did all the work. He cared for this vineyard. All they've got to do is keep it up, and all they've got to do is give him a certain percentage of the fruit each year, and he even picks it up. They don't have to ship it to him. Well, what happens? The, the servants show up to collect the fr- fruit, but the, the tenants refuse to pay. The first servant shows up to get the fruit, and they beat him up, punch him, Maybe they hit him with sticks. Who knows what they do? But they beat him up. The owner sends a second servant, and they kill him. And then he sends a third servant, and they stone him. And and I think we are meant to understand that by stoning him, that meant that they killed him. So they beat up one servant, and they kill two more servants. And so the owner sends a larger group of servants, more guys than the first time. Same thing happens. Some of the servants they beat up, some of the servants they kill. Now, children, what do you think the owner is going to do at this point? We, we might expect that at this point, after having several servants beaten up and several servants killed, he's going to send some guys who aren't so nice. He's going to send in the guys who break thumbs and break kneecaps. He's going to take care of these tenant farmers. But that's not what he does. The owner says to himself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son. They they may not have respected my servants. They may have treated them harshly. They may have killed some, but, but they will surely respect my son. And so he sends his son, and when the tenants see the son, the tenants say, this guy's the heir. And, and, and if we kill him, all of this can be ours. Now, that's dumb thinking. Just by killing the heir doesn't mean they're going to get it. But, but you know, that's kind of what sin does to us. Sin makes us irrational. Sin makes us think irrationally. And so they take the son and they throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him. Now, most of you here tonight have read this parable. Most of you have heard this story before. What's your reaction to the story? How would you react if this is the first time you've heard this? I mean, it's, it's, it's inconceivable that people could be like this. This, this parable is meant to, to leave us outraged. These, these tenant farmers had a, had a great situation. This owner seems to be a very kind and, and very generous man But they take his servants and they beat some up and they kill others and they even kill his own son. And that leads to the question that Jesus is now going to ask. You can imagine, you know, here are are the religious leaders. Here are these erudite, scholarly men. And and they are are listening to Jesus tell this story. And, And you can almost picture them with 
with either their mouths wide open, like who would do that? Or steam is coming out of their ears. They, they can't believe that people would act this way. They're, they're stunned, they're, they're furious, and Jesus asks them in verse 40, when the owner shows up, what do you think he's going to do? Children, what do you think the owner would do? When this guy gets back from his extended vacation, when he deals with these people who beat up and killed his servants and murdered his own son, what is this owner going to do? The Jewish leaders know exactly what he's going to do. Verse 41, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders here, they don't, they don't see what Jesus is really getting at. We'll see this in a moment. They don't understand that he's telling a parable about them. It's, it's like the Old Testament parable we looked at last week. You remember when, when Nathan the prophet goes to David and he says to David, you know, there was, a, there was a rich man who had all of these herds and flocks and there was a poor man who had one little sheep and, and the, the rich man, when he had a guest come stay for dinner, he didn't use any of his own flocks or herds. He went and he stole that one man's sheep. And, and David hears that, and, and David says, that guy, that rich guy deserves to die. And, and Nathan, you remember, says, David, you're that guy. You're the guy who stole another man's wife. Here in Matthew, the Jewish leaders don't get it. They're blind to their sin. They, they, don't, they don't apply Jesus' teaching to themselves. We do that sometimes, don't we? we? We read our Bibles or we listen to a sermon and we say to ourselves, and I've done it, boy, so-and-so needs to hear this. I hope, I hope he's listening. I hope she's listening. And we fail to apply it to ourselves. And, and here, these religious leaders who are so scholarly and so knowledgeable and know the word of God very, very well, they, they aren't applying it to our, their own lives. And they just, they just blurt out, we know what the owner's going to do. He's going to put those guys to a miserable death. And then he's going to rent out his vineyard to people who will actually pay rent. Well, Jesus is now going to explain the parable. Now, now, before we look at the rest of the passage... Who do the characters of this parable symbolize? Who's the owner? Uh, who are the tenants? Who are the servants? And who is the son? Well, very simply, you, most, most of you probably already know this. This is, a, this is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. This is a picture of God's relationship with his covenant people. The owner is God. The, the, the vineyard is his people. Isaiah chapter 5 even says that Israel is God's vineyard. Now just as the owner showed such great care for his vineyard, think back in the Old Testament and, and think of all the care and the love and the concern that God showed for his people. Children, you remember that when um, Adam and Eve sinned, God clothed them, didn't he? And, and you read through the Old Testament and you see how, how God not only cared for Adam and Eve, but he, he brought Abraham out of paganism. He, he rescued his people Israel from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He, um, he brought them through the wilderness and into the promised land. 
That's just the first six books of the Old Testament. You, you, you can't read the Old Testament without seeing constantly God's great love for his people, God's great care for his vineyard. And hasn't he shown such great love and care for us? Don't we have such wonderful privileges? What a, what a privilege it is to, to be in church twice on Sunday. Somebody, somebody said, one of the students in our profession of faith class said today, you, you know, we, we get to go to church on Sunday. That's, a, that's an A-plus answer. It's not that we merely have to go to church. We get to go to church. Places in other places in our world, people don't get to go to church. We have Bibles. We have all kinds of Christian literature. Look at the, look at the table the library has set up in the Fellowship Hall. That's just a sampling of what's available to us today. We have so many privileges. God has cared for us and showed such great love and concern for us. And that's what he did for his people in the Old Testament. And so the owner is God, the vineyard is his people. What about the tenants? Well, the tenants are those who are given the charge to watch over Israel, to watch over the people of God, especially to care for their spiritual needs. Now, Jesus is telling this parable to those exact people. He's telling this parable to the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, the men that God had put in charge of his vineyard. God had given these men the calling to to watch over Israel, to care for Israel, to shepherd Israel, to be concerned about God's people. And then who are the servants? The servants, very simply, are those whom God sends to his people. Prophets who go to God's people to speak the word of God. Now think about this. What does is, what is Israel's history tell us about the way that the leaders of Israel treated God's prophets? When, when God sent prophets to Israel to, to warn them, to inspect for fruit, to call them to repentance and faith. How did those prophets get treated? Did they roll out the red carpet and say, yay, the prophets are here. We want to listen to whatever they have to tell us. Take your Bibles for just a moment and go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, and uh, look at verse 32. Hebrews eleven thirty-two. the author says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Stop there. God, God raised up many faithful servants. All throughout the Old Testament, God raised up faithful, faithful servants to serve him and to proclaim his word. But how were they treated? Notice the next verse. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You know, we often read that as if it's telling us what the pagan nations did to the prophets. But that's also how Israel treated their prophets. That's how God's covenant people treated those who were sent to them. You might remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And so the the owner is God. The people are the vineyard. The religious leaders are the tenants and the prophets are the servants. And of course you know who the son is. Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. See, this parable is not only looking back at how prophets were treated in the past, but this parable is also looking to the future. This parable is prophetic. It's, It's looking ahead to what will happen later this week when they will actually kill and crucify Jesus. From the time Jesus was born, people wanted to kill him. Herod tried to kill him in Matthew 2. Uh, The Pharisees plotted how to destroy Jesus in Matthew 3 or Mark chapter 3. In Luke chapter 4, they they even took Jesus uh, out of Nazareth and they took him to the edge of a cliff and tried to throw him off a cliff. And, And that's just a sampling of how the Lord Jesus was treated all throughout his earthly ministry. And eventually, later this week, they will succeed It will kill the only son whom God had sent. But here's what we must never forget. God is doing all of this according to his perfect eternal plan. We sometimes get the mistaken idea that that God is in heaven wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen. But all of this was part of God's eternal plan. Acts chapter 2 Peter's preaching a sermon and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men. Yes, Jesus was treated like the son in this parable, but all of it was according to God's plan and brothers and sisters, this was all for your salvation. That's how much God loves the world, that he gave his only son to die. Well, after the Jewish leaders say to Jesus, these these tenant farmers deserve to die, Jesus says to them in verse 42, back to Matthew 21, he says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's as if Jesus is saying, Don't you guys know your Bibles? You guys claim to be so knowledgeable and so smart and so erudite. Don't you know Psalm 118? Psalm 118 was a Hallel Psalm. I told you about the Hallel Psalms a couple of weeks ago that that the, the Jews would sing the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They would sing those every Passover season. And remember, it's Passover season here in Matthew 21. And so this is a real jab at these men. Jesus is saying, don't you know the very psalms that you've been singing this week? Don't you get it? 
The picture in Psalm 118 is that there's a, there's a builder who's, who's looking for just the right stone. He's looking for the perfect stone to complete his building, and he finds that stone. It's perfect. It's exactly what he needs. But instead of using it to complete his building, he just throws the stone away, just like the religious leaders did with Jesus. They saw his miracles. They heard his teachings. It was abundantly clear that he was the Messiah sent by God. He was the perfect Savior. But they threw him out. And they killed him. What happens to this stone? Well, this stone, Jesus, doesn't remain in the grave after they kill him. He's he's risen from the dead. He's triumphant over the grave. He ascends to heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as the end of that quotation from Psalm 118 says, this was the Lord's doing. This was God's work. The death of his son so that we would live. And to quote Psalm 118, it is marvelous in our eyes. If you are a Christian, the death of Jesus Christ is marvelous in your eyes. Yes, it was a wicked, wicked event, an act, but it was all the plan of God for our salvation. It it is wonderful. It is the greatest news that we will ever hear. What does Jesus now say to these men who have rejected him again? Brothers and sisters, you you sit in church every Sunday. And this parable tonight is, is a warning to us not to reject the gospel, not to reject the Savior. Verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now people often mistake what Jesus is saying here. Um, He's not saying, Israel, I'm I'm done with you and I'm now turning my attention to the church. He's not saying, Israel, you were plan A, um, but the church is now plan B and I'm moving to plan B. That's how our dispensational brothers and sisters interpret this verse, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Remember, Jesus is speaking here to the Sanhedrin. He's he's speaking to the leaders of God's covenant people. And what he's saying is this, I'm removing you from being a tenant farmer over my vineyard. I'm removing you from shepherding my people. And you are being replaced with true shepherds who will care for my sheep. The immediate fulfillment of this, of course, was the apostles and the leaders of the early church and Later, this would include elders and and pastors as well. And then in verse 44, Jesus says, The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's a stern warning tonight. Um, Jesus is saying, Anyone who opposes me will one day be crushed. Jesus is not, clearly he's not a proponent of what is heard in our culture today. What is heard in our culture today, and and even in some churches today, is it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Our world, our culture is, is very what's called syncretistic. 
In other words, it's a, it's a blending of all religions. All religions are valid. All roads lead to God. All paths lead to heaven. Maybe you've seen before the, the coexist bumper stickers that, that argue for all religions being valid. That's not what Jesus says, and that's not what the Bible says. There's only one true religion. There's only one way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you do not believe in me, if you reject me, if you live in opposition to me, you will one day be crushed. If you oppose him, you will one day find yourself on the losing end. His kingdom will will break to pieces all other kingdoms. Do you remember how Psalm 2 ends? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I tell you all tonight, again, that the only refuge you will find from the wrath of God is Jesus. Muhammad will not be your refuge. Joseph Smith will not be your refuge. Mary Baker Eddy will not be your refuge. Your good works will not be your refuge. Your church membership will not be your refuge. Only Jesus is your refuge. Our passage ends and tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees hear these parables, this one and the one we looked at last week, and they go... I think he might be talking about us. I mean, you think? And it upsets them. Who is this man to talk to us like that? Who does this man think he is? And they want to arrest him. But, but look what happens. Because the crowds view Jesus as a prophet and because the religious leaders fear the crowds, they, they don't do anything yet. When it came right down to it, the Jewish leaders were people pleasers. They cared more about what people thought of them than what God thought of them. Children, it's not good to be a people pleaser. It's not good to live your life caring more what people think than what God thinks. Paul says in Galatians 1, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There's a lot of application that we could talk about from this parable. Certainly it's a warning about the danger of hypocrisy, but we talked about that last Sunday night. The danger of thinking that your covenant status will save you. That's a very legitimate application of this parable but I want to leave you with this tonight never forget who is in charge of this whole dialogue never forget that Jesus this is this is very interesting to me Jesus is is purposely telling a parable to these Jewish leaders that that he knows will anger them and lead to his death. 
Would you go up to someone and, and, and say something to them that you knew would make them angry enough to kill you? I don't, I don't know that I would. But that's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling a parable that he knows full well in his perfect wisdom and knowledge. He knows what this parable will lead to. And that's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves his people. That's how committed he is to save you from your sin and from the judgment that you deserve. That he would willingly tell a parable that would lead to him undergoing the most painful, cursed death imaginable. And so for the believer in Christ tonight, and and I believe that I am speaking principally to people who profess Christ. For you tonight, this parable should, should cheer your heart. You should go home tonight saying to yourself, you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus told a parable that he knew would so anger the religious leaders that it would lead to his death. And he did it so that I would be saved. And he did it so that I would live forever with him. All of this, as Psalm 118 says, is wonderful in our eyes. Is it wonderful to you? Is it wonderful to know that Jesus endured this for your sake? That's how much he loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this parable tonight. Lord, while it is certainly a a warning to those who may trust in their, their covenant membership, for right standing with you. It, it is also for the true believer, it is very comforting and it makes our hearts glad that our dear Savior told this parable full well knowing that it would lead to his death. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us your only son and that through his life and his death and his resurrection, we have life eternal. Lord, as we go out into a new week this week, we we pray that whether we are at home or school or work or whatever it is that we are doing, that, that we would think often of what Jesus has done for us and that we would tell others of this good news and that we would seek to live our lives in such a way that would be sacrifices, living sacrifices of praise for the grace and mercy that we have been shown. We pray this 